the dark shadows of the Rue Morgue, to the rhythm of the stolen telltale heart, as the black cat swings upon the pendulum, and the cask offers its sherry deep and dry. As you knock at our chamber door, we open and usher you in. Our sleepless tales for you in store, and the terror shall be lifted. yourself for the no sleep podcast Welcome to Season 19 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm your host, David Cummings. We are thrilled to be thrilling and chilling again with our new season. For Season 19, we're drawing inspiration from an author and poet whose name is synonymous with the dark, the macabre, the shadows which dwell in our minds, inspiring grave fears. Yes, we find ourselves gently rapping at the chamber door of Edgar Allan Poe, Throughout the season, we'll be featuring stories inspired by his most famous stories and poems. We'll even be adapting some of his stories for you. Now, some of you may be unfamiliar with Poe's works. If you'd like to learn a bit more about this melancholy man, I encourage you to check the show notes for a link to an excellent overview of both Poe and his most famous works, written by author and frequent No Sleep podcast contributor, René Rain. It's a solid starting point from which to learn about the mind which created tales like The Telltale Heart, The Cask of Amontillado, and The Fall of the House of Usher. And so, a new season, a new inspiration, and so many new horrors to introduce you to. And what better way to start than to devote our first tale to the man himself? It is, without fear of contradiction, his most famous piece of writing. A story told in rhyme, one which inspired so many who followed. A story not unlike all the tales in this episode, featuring a visitor arriving during a dark moment. And who better than our own Peter Lewis to perform it for you? So let us begin our journey through season 19 with a not-so-friendly companion. That devilish blackbird we know as the Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember it was in the bleak December." and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless, 
here forevermore. And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, that it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is, I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there, wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber, turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, something louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see, then, what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then the ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore, tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled, this ungainly fowl, to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such a name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on that placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if its soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther then he uttered, not a feather then he fluttered, till I, scarcely more than muttered, other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply, so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, Caught from some unhappy master, whom unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore, Of never, nevermore. 
But the raven, still beguiling all my sad soul into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er. But whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press? Ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land, enchanted on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet? Said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul, with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadows on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted never more. It can be difficult when long distances keep you separated from family members. When they're going through struggles, it can compel one to travel to provide support. But in this tale, shared with us by author J.D. Erickson, 
we meet a man who wants to help his brother and sister-in-law. Their loss is immense and perhaps fleeting. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, Mary Murphy, and Danielle McRae. So overlook their messy house. It's not easy to tidy up the mess, the clutter, and a pair of old shoes. It had been more than a year since Jacob had seen his brother. That by itself wouldn't have been entirely strange. They lived far enough apart that it was at least a whole day's affair just to reach one another. And if Jacob didn't have time to hop a train and head down for a visit, how could he expect Matthew to do so? Especially considering all that had happened to him in the past year. And really, that was why Jacob made the exception now. His brother's letters of late had been short, uninformative, and desolate. Until the most recent one. Jacob put his hand in his coat pocket now to clutch it, as though that small touch might force it to make sense. He stared up at the manor, his childhood home and now the home of his older brother's family. Well, Matthew and his wife. There wasn't much of a family anymore. Jacob rested a hand against the iron gate, nervous now about seeing his brother. Had he left too soon after the funeral? Should he have moved back in with his brother to care for him and his wife while they processed their grief? At the time, he had been sure that he was making the right decision. Their grief was wide and deep, and it seemed to him that they craved privacy to deal with their loss. Or maybe... He had just been afraid of being swallowed whole. He pushed the gate open, listening to the at once familiar and ominous creak of the hinges as it swung inward. The path to the house was overgrown, and Jacob picked his way through carefully, his coat catching on brambles as he went. The house stood tall, dark empty windows glaring down at him, and walls covered with ivy. Jacob couldn't blame his brother for not receiving visitors, but it really was inexcusable to let the house go to seed like this. The steps to the great doorway creaked beneath his feet, and Jacob had half a thought that they would break and his foot would slide down into the wet mouth of wood where he would be forced to wait for his brother to come to him. He hurried up the last few steps to the door and was ashamed at the relief he felt at being on the study porch. It was his own house. It shouldn't seem half so strange, no matter how long he had been away. He knocked on the door with his fist, bypassing the iron knocker with its lion's head. He'd always hoped his brother would get rid of that. It had terrified them both as children. There was... silence inside the house. His brother was home, wasn't he? To Jacob's knowledge, and the opinion of the townspeople he'd stayed with after his late train, neither Matthew nor Elsa had left their estate for months. The innkeeper had said that every other week one of the local boys would bring up food for them and leave it on the porch, and collect his payment from the week before. Jacob had asked if anyone had even seen his brother then, and the innkeeper had told him no, that his brother kept to himself now. 
It had made Jacob's heart seize with something like fear. How could he have abandoned his brother like this? Was his own life in the city really so important? His work as a law clerk seemed suddenly insignificant next to the thought that his brother had been going mad with grief and too afraid or ashamed to ask for help. Jacob took hold of the iron knocker, fingers sliding against the lion's teeth, and knocked hard. After what seemed a long moment, there were footsteps on the other side of the door, and then it opened. Jacob had expected to see Sebastian, his brother's butler since he had turned 18 and inherited the property, but instead it was Matthew himself who opened the door. His brother's face was worn with lines and a deep scowl, his hair uncombed and loose around his face. But when he saw Jacob, his face changed, lit up with something close to joy and closer still to mania. Jacob! (laughs) Matthew pulled him through the door and into a hug. Jacob returned it reluctantly. His brother smelled as though he hadn't bathed all that recently, and his fingers dug painfully into Jacob's back. Jacob pulled out of the hug. Matthew, I... He hesitated. Should he say he was worried for his brother? He pulled on a smile. I'm sorry it's been so long. I've been so busy. I thought it was high time for a visit. Yes. I never thought you would come, but I'm glad... Please, uh, let me get your coat, brother. Jacob let Matthew pull his coat off with twitching fingers. No, Sebastian. Matthew paused, leaving Jacob's arms tangled in the end of his coat behind him. No, no more. We had to let him go. Uh Why? Jacob was sure he failed to conceal his surprise. Why? Because he was caught stealing our things is why. Jacob frowned. Sebastian wouldn't. He couldn't. Not the sweet, dark-eyed man Jacob knew. Still, he hadn't been there. He couldn't know for sure. Oh, a shame. Yes. Matthew tugged the coat down, freeing Jacob's hands, and hung it on the old coat rack that used to be their father's. Tea? No, please. Elsa, dear... Jacob glanced around the house. The front room was bare and dusty, his brother's coat and mantle covered in a fine layer of gray, and his sister-in-law's shawl hung tattered beside it. There were several pairs of shoes lined up on the old shelves by the door. He recognized his brother's favorite style, those black old shoes in the same fashion their father had favored and Elsa's heels and boots in their eccentric and no doubt expensive style. Her boots were at least a year out of fashion, Jacob noted. Elsa would never stand for that. Or at least, she wouldn't before. And last but not least, there was a pair of shoes much smaller than the rest. The boys' shoes. Well-worn and muddy. Jacob stared for a moment. Then the sound of his sister-in-law on the stairs made him look away. Elsa was dressed in bright yellow, her hair half done up as though she'd given up partway through, or someone had pulled it loose. Jacob frowned. 
Last he had seen her, she had still been in black mourning dress. Even now, she should be in half-mourning, some gray or subdued color at least. It had not even been a full year. But this bright and faded yellow was like old sunlight, and it was too much. Elsa hurried down the stairs. She pulled Jacob in a hug, through which he remained stiff. Elsa was never one for affection. Elsa, dear, my brother would like some tea. At once. She kissed Jacob on the cheek and hurried through to the kitchen. Have you no staff at all? We don't need them. I never realized how easy it would be. We do it ourselves, Jacob. We don't need their eyes and their wagging tongues. Jacob turned away from his brother for a moment, unable to meet his eyes. There was an almost feverish intensity to Matthew's gaze, and it unnerved him. Come, we'll get you settled. Matthew ushered him through to the parlor. It remained largely unchanged from the last time Jacob had seen it. The same old chairs sat at the edge of the familiar arabesque rug. Its pattern now faded and marked where the chair legs had worn holes in the fabric. And there was the same old curtain, thick and embroidered with red flowers, hanging heavy across the window. Matthew pulled the curtain aside, dust motes spinning in the air as he allowed the white clouded light to illuminate the room. This room, too, was dusty in spots. The fireplace was ashy and dark, candles on the mantelpiece half melted and unchanged. There was a book open on one side table, pages moth-eaten and heavy with dust. On the far table sat a small tray of white cookies, and it took a moment for Jacob to realize they were white with mold. The mirror over the fireplace was covered with an old and worn sheet, the odd glint catching in the cold daylight. And there by the far window, a set of old letter blocks paused mid-play. Jacob was fairly certain those were not there for the wake. Why would they be? Elsa or Matthew must have taken them out. Must have wanted to touch his things. The blocks were clean. The only object in the room that looked as though they had been treated with care. Matthew struck at the old cushions of the chairs, causing dust to billow up and catch in the natural light. Uh, you must forgive us, we don't use the chairs so much. Jacob hummed an acknowledgement, keeping his back to his brother. How could Matthew and Elsa live like this? It was... disgusting. Matthew placed a hand on his back and Jacob nearly jumped. His brother gave him an apologetic smile and pointed him towards a seat. Jacob sat stiffly. He would no doubt need to have his suit cleaned after this. It really is wonderful to see you. It's been a long time. Yes, well, the people in Bankhead say you don't come down and you haven't hosted anyone. Matthew's face darkened. I don't care what they say. I don't want to see any of them. His expression softened. But family is different. That at least made Jacob feel a little better. He opened his mouth to ask about the letter, about what his brother had meant. Elsa swept into the room with a small tray, and Jacob shut his mouth. 
I brought some cookies. You must be hungry. Jacob glanced down at the tray, half expecting the cookies to be molded over like the ones on the far table. They weren't. They were perfectly ordinary little jam-filled cookies. The same kind they'd always had before. David's favorite. Jacob swallowed hard. Thank you. Elsa smiled, setting the tray down on the small table between Matthew and Jacob, and stood smoothing her dress. In this light, Jacob could see dark streaks of dirt in the worn fabric, and the ends of her skirt were frayed and unkept. I really must excuse myself now. Of course, darling. Matthew took her hand, kissing it. Jacob watched for a moment. If he didn't know better, he'd think they were happy. Or at least, content with each other. But the holes in Matthew's coat and the frayed edges of Elsa's skirts told him not to take it at face value. They were either putting on a performance for him, or they had somewhat lost their minds. Jacob was inclined to think it was the latter. Elsa backed out of the room with a small curtsy and hurried back up the stairs to return to God knew what. So, how have you been? Matthew picked up his cup, drinking from it immediately without adding his usual two sugars. Jacob hesitated, picking up his own cup carefully by the handle. Well enough, I suppose. You're busy. <laughs> yes, that's the city for you. And you still work with Michelson? Yes. Jacob raised the cup to his lips. The tea was cold and greasy against his tongue. He grimaced into the cup, setting it down. Across from him, Matthew took another sip. Parting any ladies yet? Jacob hesitated. Well, no. He wasn't here to discuss his own prospects in any case, but it certainly wouldn't do to tell his brother he'd been romancing Michelson the Younger for the past several months. It wouldn't help things at the moment. We'd always hoped you'd give David someone to play with. Matthew popped one of the cookies into his mouth. Jacob frowned. For the better part of almost a year, none of Matthew's letters had mentioned David at all. He had been the absent subject at the heart of things, and Jacob had obliged his brother in avoiding it. Until, quite suddenly, Matthew's most recent letter had carried on about David at great length. Yes. It made him uneasy to hear Matthew speak so casually about David after such a long silence on the matter. He swallowed thickly. Perhaps when I'm not so married to my work. Matthew obliged him with a smile. But you, Matthew, how are you? Jacob shifted forward slightly in the old chair. Me? Matthew looked slightly confused. I'm wonderful. Why shouldn't I be? Jacob opened his mouth and then closed it. He burned to ask about the letter, conscious of its weight in his pocket. And why not? It was why he was here, after all. Let Matthew know he was concerned for him. They were brothers, after all. Your letter, I found it confusing. Matthew shrugged at him. Why? You... Jacob paused... How could he put it into words? That Matthew's letters had gone from the depressing breakdown of a life after loss to single-line updates that barely revealed any detail. 
Until finally, after three months' silence, along an exuberant account that was almost what it used to be before the accident. It had been upsetting, to say the least, and Jacob had spent the better part of the night going through the letter again and again, looking for some sign his brother was joking, or that this letter was old and had somehow been very lately delivered. But he'd known it wasn't. He'd gotten on the train the very next morning. Oh, you can't be serious. In, in your letter, you said that... that. He dropped his voice involuntarily. David was back. Yes. Matthew's eyes were wide. It was a miracle. And who am I to question a miracle, Jacob? Matthew. It had a pleading edge he hadn't intended. These things don't happen. Your letter, it read like madness. And so it was. But David is back. He's playing upstairs in his room as we speak. He went horseback riding only last week, like he used to. He's getting to be so big. Just stop it. Jacob jerked away from his brother. He isn't back, Matthew. People don't come back. You're not well. Matthew went still, considering him a moment. What do you know? You haven't been there. You didn't see him come home, muddy from playing in the rain. You weren't there. No, I wasn't. But I should have been, Matthew. I'm sorry. Matthew leaned back, looking somewhat satisfied. I suppose you want to see him. I... Jacob glanced towards the old stairway. No. Matthew, there's no one here but you and Elsa. Liar. He always loved you, you know. And those little shoes you got for him after he wore your fancy shoes all around the house? Matthew traced the edge of his teacup with one finger. Jacob flinched at the memory. David had been a bright boy, and it had warmed his heart when he asked to wear Jacob's coat and shoes. Matthew. Come on, then. Matthew stood. Come and see. No, Matthew, come to the city with me. We can get help for you, for Elsa. Matthew didn't respond, already heading to the staircase. Jacob followed him against his better judgment. Maybe what Matthew needed was for Jacob to see the empty bedroom with him, to dispel the notion that his son had somehow returned from the dead. Maybe he needed a small touch of outside reality after being cooped up with his wife in their own world for so long. Matthew led the way up the stairs, taking them nearly two at a time. He'll be so disappointed you didn't bring anything for him from the city. But I suppose he'll get over it. <laughs> he'll be so thrilled to see you again. The hall upstairs was dark and cool, and Jacob felt small in the space, unsure of himself. It smelled terrible upstairs, and he was fairly certain he didn't want to know why. David's playroom had been the second room on the right, and it was to this door Matthew led him. Please stop this, brother. Jacob wasn't surprised when Matthew didn't answer. Matthew knocked softly on the door. Elsa, dear, I've brought Uncle Jake to play with David. Elsa opened the door a moment later, cheeks flushed. There was a new tear in her skirt. He's a little tyrant today. I think we spoil him. <laughs> he deserves to be spoiled. 
Matthew pushed the door open further. Inside the room, Jacob could see it was exactly how it had been left before. Toys littered the floor, and the old rocking horse that had been in the family for generations had been pulled to the center of the room, where David liked to play on it. Elsa slid out of the room, and Jacob took half a step forward. Matthew pushed him roughly through the door, and when Jacob turned to confront him, he slammed the door in his face. Matthew, this isn't funny. Let me out. Play with your nephew. Go on, he's missed you. Jacob turned to the room, eyes catching on a half a dozen memories. Dust floated in the air, unsettled from the toys and the books. But the smell here was strong and rotten and nearly made his eyes water. He was afraid to look. Afraid of what his brother might have done, or might have meant. He leaned heavily against the door. In the far corner of the room was the rocking chair where Jacob had been held as a boy, as his mother read to him. And where he had seen Elsa hold David. And where he himself had held the boy on his lap and read to him. In the slowly shifting chair was a boy, or what had been a boy. It was dark, like the ground it had been buried in, and carefully redressed into one of David's brightly colored outfits. There was a great hole in the skull, and Jacob flinched. He had never seen the body. He hadn't wanted to, knowing what had happened with the carriage. Oh, God. It slipped from his mouth involuntarily. Matthew, what have you done? We prayed for him to come home, that's all. We were desperate. We kept his things the way he wanted. We were waiting. You dug up your own son. Jacob squeezed his eyes shut. Matthew, how could you? To violate his own son's grave and dress his body up like some plaything. It was sick. His brother needed help. I did nothing. For the first time, he sounded angry. I did nothing but pray, and my prayers were answered. Please let me out of here. Come back to the city with me. You can, you can bring David. He always wanted to see the office where I worked. We can, we can go together. No. David doesn't want to leave here. Not again. Matthew, he's dead. Jacob turned to face the door, shoving against it as hard as he could. Matthew had always been larger and stronger than him, and even now, wasted as he was, he kept the door firmly shut. Matthew! Jacob paused. Behind him, something moved. He tensed, unwilling to turn around. It was only the chair coming to a stop. He couldn't make himself turn back to his desecrated nephew. When you really pray God hears you, he sends them back. Jacob thumped his head against the door. Please. There was a scratching sound behind him, and something cold crept up his spine. Soft, shallow breathing. A light step. Just look at him. 
You'll see. Jacob stared at the door ahead of him. Uncle? It was soft and curious. David's voice. No. Did you bring me anything? Jacob's heart seized. It sounded so much like David. Though it was small and a little hollow. But how? And how could he not turn to his nephew and take him in his arms? He wanted to. More than anything. But he could not make his body move. He had seen it. That empty corpse in the chair. And the thought of that dead thing moving around made him sick. He was sure that was what he would see if he turned. The thought wouldn't leave him. What Matthew had done, whatever this was, it was unnatural. Matthew, what did you do? I have done nothing but love my son. We deserved to have him back. Matthew, this thing isn't your son. Jacob twisted the handle of the door uselessly. David is gone. Or maybe you aren't my brother. Jacob recoiled. Matthew! This was madness. He should have read it in his brother's eyes and left while he still had the chance. Something touched his leg. Thin fingers curling into his trousers. Jacob looked up at the ceiling, unwilling to look down at the thing that wasn't his nephew. The thing that should not be moving. He tried to say a prayer, but it died on his tongue. Just look at him. Jacob glanced down involuntarily. There, staring up at him, was his nephew's sweet face. Blue-eyed and innocent as the day he had climbed into the carriage to head to the city. For the very first time before... It made his heart melt to see the boy so whole. Overwhelmed, he fell to his knees, wrapping his arms around the boy's small and rigid body. It would be so nice to believe it was David, that he had a second chance at life. And why couldn't it be so? Something sharp slid hard against his ribs, and Jacob felt strangely lightheaded. He stuttered a breath against David's blonde hair, shocked at the sudden pain and the strange weight in his chest. For an instant, he had the unformed thought that if he had to pay with his life so that David could have a second chance, then he would do it. But it did not feel like a miracle when his blood ran down his leg. It felt like something small and twisted and malicious. Jacob tried to stand, but his legs were weak. He let himself fall to the floor, watching David skip to his rocking horse. As Jacob's eyes unfocused, it seemed to him that David was that wretched body once more. Rotting hands tugging on the neck of the wooden horse. He watched his nephew play while the world 
slowly went dark. Something had certainly answered his brother's prayers. It can be difficult to make sense of loss and grief. Poe himself seemed obsessed with the grave and the endless hereafter. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jill Benson, we meet a man who has to ponder why he laments his late wife and what fateful missteps brought him to despair. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett and Sarah Thomas. So no matter how dreary the midnight may be, Listen closely for those snuffling noises. I buried my wife yesterday. Funny. I hardly remember the funeral. Only a handful of people at the graveside service. Myself, old Doc Edmonds and his family, Emma's sister and her son, a few folks from town. It's all a blur. I guess that's the grief. We've been married less than a year. Now she's dead. For no reason I can really put my finger on, I feel compelled to write down the chain of events that led to her death. It must be the journalist in me. Or maybe that has nothing to do with it, really, and I just need to. For my own sanity... We had moved into the old farmhouse only a couple of months ago. In fact, the third bedroom, the spare where we tended to throw everything we didn't know what to do with, still has some crates and a few trunks in it left to unpack. I look at those crates, each with a neat handwritten label showing our new address. Emma's hand. Emma had packed those crates and trunks full of linens and old keepsakes. Who will unpack them now? I shiver. Outside, the March cold embraces our town like an icy shroud, but inside, the old pot-bellied stove is fully stoked, flames dancing, though I can't feel their warmth. It's quiet. There's that, at least. Emma had absolutely fallen in love with the house, a little farmhouse on the outskirts of town that needed a bit of fixing up. Hell, a lot of fixing up, but we could afford it, at least. My job at the paper was fetching almost $75 a week. Not bad for a young man of only 23. The home had become available when a local merchant had passed from consumption. Nasty business, that was. And his wife, unable to remarry, had gone back north to her father's home. The townspeople would have nothing to do with the house for their superstitious fear of contagion. But fear and superstition are common in a small town. However, that did work to our advantage in that the price of the house was significantly under market value, and neither myself nor my new bride feared the disease. And so, I had made the down payment with the small savings I had amassed. Emma loved the high-beamed ceiling in the great room and the delicate architecture of the archways. Even I, though acknowledging the current state of deterioration and the resulting repairs that would need to be done, 
admired the workmanship. Another attractive feature of the home was that it came with a bit of property, about 75 acres in all. Most of it was overgrown, and there would be much to do come spring, but Emma was so excited. Emma had grown up back east and had spent much of her girlhood in boarding schools with only holidays and summer vacations at her family home. Those times, brief as they were, held for her pleasant memories of running and playing on the family land. We moved in on a chilly day in early November. Emma was unpacking items in the kitchen while I brought in the rest of the crates and luggage. She had unpacked the wedding picture of us not even a year old and came to me saying the perfect spot for it was on a small inlaid shelf in the great room. I'm holding that picture now. Emma is stunning in her veiled bonnet, gloved hands holding the cascading bouquet of orchids and calla lilies, her delicate form draped so elegantly in the wedding gown that her grandmother had given her. I stand beside her trying to look regal and proper, yet failing miserably. She was always so chic, and to this day I'm still not sure what she saw in a small-town Midwest boy such as myself. I tilt the picture, letting the light hit it just so, and notice a long hairline crack in the glass. I finger it briefly, and wonder why Emma had not mentioned it before. It must have happened during the move, and I can only guess that she had not noticed it either. The crack runs between the two of us, splitting us apart as if the photo itself somehow knows we are no longer together. With a pain in my heart that is almost unbearable, I place the photo back on the shelf and try to ignore the sorrow such thoughts can only bring. Instead, I turn and gaze out the south-facing window and think back to the day a mere few weeks earlier when we had stumbled upon the thing. A pile of rocks is what I thought it was, but Emma, of course, could see more. Earlier that week, I'd cleared a small portion of land behind our house to ready it for planting come spring, but beyond that lay about fifty acres of thick woods. A trail runs through part of those woods, though it is dense and overgrown, making it easy to lose your way. It had probably been a bit reckless of us to explore, but Emma was always an adventurer. Although temperatures this time of year are usually in the thirties or forties, we'd had a brief warm spell, and Emma had decided we would take advantage of the pleasant morning and explore the grounds and surrounding woods. We'd walked the trail, carefully stepping over fallen branches and around deadfalls, but enjoying the outdoors, for about an hour, before I commented to Emma that we should head back. We had briefly lost our way twice, and I thought it best we not push our luck. We were about to do just that when Emma saw it. She always had eyes like a hawk. A lump forms in my throat now, and I'm almost crying again. But I swallow and fall back into the memory. I smile when I think of how pretty she looked that day, standing in the dappled sunlight, the sun caressing her soft hair, making it shimmer beautifully. Look, it looks like a little stone house. I followed her gaze. Dearest, that's just a pile of rocks. Don't be silly. She grabbed my hand, pulling me behind her as she pressed forward. In a stand of trees, partially hidden in old, yellowing weeds and last year's summer brush, was indeed what looked to be a pile of rocks. Yes, the pile was a little square-shaped, and there was a jagged, narrow opening at the front, but I'll be damned if it looked like... 
See? It looks like a house for little people. Fairies, perhaps. <gasps> or elves. Santa's supposed to live at the North Pole. Unless his elves have a summer place in Missouri. She ignored me. Two windows up front. A little step here. She pointed to a flat slab of rock at the front. And a door. And look, even a chimney. She indicated a square-shaped rock that lay awkwardly on top. Emma, it looks like a pile of rocks to me. She swatted at me playfully. You just have no imagination. She leaned down then, peering into one of the small gaps in the pile that she said looked like a window. And there's another flat rock inside. It looks just like a tiny table. And you have a vivid imagination. I walked around to the far side of the pile and saw an old wooden sign. Someone at one time had hammered it into the ground, but it was now almost completely fallen over. I picked up the wood post, noticed it was infested with termites, and dropped it immediately, absently wiping my hand against my jacket. I found myself gazing at the sign that now lay on the ground and silently read the faded words. Then we both heard it. A loud crack, as if someone had stepped on a large branch behind us. Emma cried out in surprise, and we turned around guiltily, as if we'd been caught doing a little more in the woods besides staring at a bunch of rocks. But there was no one there. After a moment, Emma looked back at me, her eyes bright. She touched my hand briefly in that way that always got my attention. Race you home. A few weeks passed, and then a few weeks more, and we'd forgotten all about the little stone house. The cold had once more lain hands on the earth, bringing with it a harsh chill and leaving the land crusty with frozen morning dew. We had unpacked and put away most everything, with the exception of the few crates still sitting in the third bedroom. I don't know why we never got around to those. It just seemed to be one of those things where we would say, ''Ah, we'll get to it tomorrow.'' Two weeks ago, Emma and I were sitting at the table eating breakfast. Black coffee, scrambled eggs, and bacon for me. The bacon fatty and underdone how I like it. Fruit and a glass of orange juice for her. I'd been busy with work all that week and had done little in the way of repairs to the house. Nor spend time with Emma. That was something I planned to rectify quite soon, with special emphasis on the latter. Emma looked up at me over her juice and uneaten fruit. She did not comment on the bacon like she sometimes did, nose scrunched up slightly in an air of disapproval. Instead, she ignored my meal completely and said, I hear snuffling noises in our bedroom. What? I paused to listen. I don't hear anything. No, last night. And the night before. Snuffling. Snuffling? You mean like a clog in the ductwork somewhere? The house was mostly heated by the pot-bellied stove that sat in the great room, but the prior owner had installed central heating a year earlier, just before he had gotten sick, apparently. I didn't know precisely how it all worked, and wasn't sure if an animal could get into the ductwork or not. I thought not, but I knew little of modern systems. No, I don't know. Maybe, to tell the truth... I was asleep, and I woke up to a... a sort of snuffling sound. Like a dog or something was in the room with us. We have no dog. But when I was fully awake, I realized the room was completely quiet. 
I thought maybe I had trumped it, but then again... Well, I said, glancing at my watch. I was running late. I didn't hear anything. It must have been a dream, don't you think? She frowned. I don't know. I put my hand under her chin, lifting her face slightly, and kissed her forehead. You going to be all right? The office had sent a car for me, and there was no time to dawdle. I'd be leaving town for a few days to cover a story in Kansas City, but I made a silent promise to myself that when I returned, I would take some time off and spend it with Emma. She touched my arm gently. Yes, I'm just being silly. Then she smiled at me. It touched her eyes in the way I will always remember. Her smile was one of the first things I fell in love with. That and her beautiful brown eyes. I glance once more at our wedding photo and shiver. It's cold, even with the fire. I'm still in a sort of shock, I realize, and that's probably why I'm so cold. I hold my hands out to the wood stove and try to warm them. Three days later, I came home. It was late, well past midnight, yet Emma rushed out onto the cold porch to greet me and wrapped her arms around me. We'd missed each other, of course, but... I lifted her face to mine, kissed her lips, and noticed dark circles under her eyes. Emma, you've not been sleeping. Are you all right? She smiled wanly. I'm fine. I just missed you, that's all. She was not telling the truth. I guided her inside, and we sat for a while in each other's arms. Tell me, what is it? She slowly shook her head, then chuckled slightly. It was a disconcerting <laughs> chuckle, and it frightened me in a vague and unformed way. Emma? She looked up and met my gaze. I'm hearing things go bump in the night. Time. It's as weightless as a feather. It floats by with such stealth, then pounces at your most fragile moment as if to say, Look at me. I'm your life passing by one second at a time and you don't even notice. When you're happy and life is good, time floats past like a child's balloon. But when things go bad, hell, when your whole world suddenly gets torn apart, time is vicious and ruthless. It stops still, then grabs you by the neck and shakes you mercilessly, as if to throttle the life out of you. And the world as you've always known it no longer exists. I checked the old grandfather clock in the corner. The hands haven't moved. It's as if they've been glued onto the face. I sigh deeply. It's the grief, I know. But I find I can hardly remember the last few days at all. I rub a shaky hand across my brow and think I might be coming down with something. Brief thoughts of TB enter my mind. But that's nonsense, of course. Emma's death has thrown me into a tailspin. I'm spiraling downward, falling fast towards the earth breathless because there's no air, but I never seem to hit the ground. I thought back to what she'd told me that morning at breakfast. Snuffling noises. She'd woken up in darkness. I'd lain beside her, but never heard a thing. Then it had happened again when I was out of town. And then, she told me as we sat together on the sofa in each other's arms, again, she said... Snuffling noises. That's the only way I can think to describe it. It was dark and I could just make out the furniture in our bedroom. 
I saw only shadows, which I knew to be simply the armoire against the far wall and the small sewing machine next to it, the chest of drawers, the rocking chair in the corner. There was only that sound. I knew I wasn't dreaming, and I was so afraid. The snuffling turned into a sort of low grunting noise, like I imagine large pigs might make when they're eating. Only this sound was crafty, somehow. I know that doesn't make sense. I laid there, moveless in the dark, truly paralyzed. I swear, I could not move an inch to save my life. She laughed slightly. <laughs> it was a nervous laugh, and I pulled her closer to me. The room was cold. You know how cold that upstairs bedroom gets, especially at night. But my body was warm. I could feel precipitation running along my neck, down the sides of my face. I could only lay there, listening to that snuffling. Then I felt a sort of tugging at the far end of the bed. Just the slightest bit. Like something was pulling itself up by the bed covers. I squeezed my eyes shut, and after that moment... I could feel the weight of it on the bed as it moved closer towards me, and all the while, making that sound, snuffling and grunting low in its throat. I tried to scream, but couldn't, and I refused to open my eyes. I knew if I opened my eyes and saw whatever was making those wet, snuffling noises, it would drive me insane. Then I heard a voice, your voice, calling to me from downstairs. And I thought, thank God you've come home early. I could no longer hear those wet snuffling sounds, and the movement in the bed stopped. There was only your voice calling. Emma? Emma? I opened my eyes. I saw nothing in the room with me, but I still felt as though it were there. It's hard to explain exactly. It was just a feeling, you know? Anyway, I found I could move again. The paralysis, or whatever it had been, was gone. I scrambled out of the bed and tripped over the footstool, the one we keep at the end of the bed, and sent it skittering across the room. I flung our bedroom door open and leaped into the hall. I was halfway down the stairs when I saw you, and God, dear sweet Jesus, you were lying at the bottom of the stairs. Your face was horrible, contorted. The left side of your head bruised and bloodied. And in that moment, I felt sure something had happened to you in Kansas City. And you were dead. Emma, I'm fine. You see I'm fine. You don't need to tell me all this. You shouldn't... Yes, I do. Please, I need to tell it. I need to tell you everything. Because if I'm going mad, you need to know. We both need to know. I started to protest. Of course she wasn't mad. She was my beautiful wife. Then I saw the cold look of determination in her eyes, and a queer sort of raw fear, and I thought, okay, tell it if you need to, and together we'll figure this out. I squeezed her hand. She squeezed back and then looked away, lost once more in the memory. I knew you were away, but it was so real. You can't imagine seeing you at the bottom of the stairs like that. I was suddenly dizzy, and for one terrifying moment, I thought I was going to tumble down those stairs. I could see myself falling, going down end over end like some rag doll. 
and I imagined I would land on my husband's corpse, unable to move, my neck broken, and I would remain there until death finally came for me. I gasped, squeezing my wife's hand. Emma, what a dreadful thought. Yes, it was. But I did not fall down the stairs. Instead, I fainted. When I woke, I was in bed again. I lay there for several moments, unsure what to do. Finally, I sat up and looked around me. It was early dawn, and I could hear birds just beginning their morning singing outside the window. I could see the stool I had stumbled over was now back at the foot of our bed, unmolested. The bedroom door closed just like it always is. Dream. Just a dream. Then I remembered the image of your lifeless body at the bottom of the stairs and thought perhaps I'd had a premonition. I wished so badly that you'd had the money to put in a phone. I wanted to call you to hear your voice, but I knew I must be patient and wait till you returned. My thoughts then turned once more to the snuffling noises I'd heard, and the thing I felt sure must have been in the room with me. Yet, I paused, thinking there had to be a logical explanation for all of this. Here I was, alone in a strange place, and I had to admit that so many of the night sounds here are foreign to me. Instead of traffic or honking horns and the sounds of neighborhood music, we have cicadas and crickets and owls. Even the wind rustling through the trees at night is not something I'm accustomed to, as you well know. Still, I felt sure something had been in the room with me. I swung my legs over the side of the bed and, for one terrible moment, I was sure it, whatever it was, was under the bed. And it would reach out its slimy, putrid hand and grab my ankle. Stop it, I told myself. Calmly, I picked up a glass of water from the night table and began to drink. I closed my eyes, letting the cool water flow down my throat. And as my bare feet gently rested on the floor, I resisted any thought that something awful might be hiding under the bed. I didn't really feel like eating, but I went downstairs and made breakfast anyway. I was glad I did. The simple act of cooking calmed me, allowed me to think. My mind was turning it all over, examining it, searching for that rational explanation. And I realized I knew what it had to be. A wild animal must have accidentally gotten into the house. A raccoon or possum or woodchuck, perhaps. And that animal, whatever it was, had frightened me. And in my heightened state of fear and worry for you... I had imagined hearing you and and seeing you that way. Of course. It was so simple. I wondered why I hadn't thought of it sooner. I quickly finished breakfast, then went back upstairs to search. I remember getting down on my hands and knees to look under the bed. And just as I was lifting the skirting, part of my mind wanted to cry out, No, it's hiding under the bed. And it's not just some animal. It's something horrible. But there was nothing. I looked in the closet, under the night tables, behind the armoire and the chest of drawers, behind the heavy drapes. I looked everywhere, but there was no sign. And I thought whatever it was, and however it had come in, it must have found its way back outside. But I could not sleep in the bedroom again. Not until you returned and we figured out what it was. Nor could I return to the stairwell where I had seen your broken and bleeding body so vividly. In fact, I avoided that part of the house altogether, 
choosing to sleep right here in the parlor. At first, it was all right. There were no sounds in the night. But then, oh dear God, last night... <sighs> Emma, I'm so sorry. I would never have gone if I had known. But she pushed me away, stood and went to the window that overlooked the cleared land at the back of the house and the woods beyond. She simply gazed out into the darkness for several moments before turning back to me. And when she did, her beautiful brown eyes seemed almost black, startling me. I swallowed then, my mouth and lips suddenly dry, and thought, No, you're not mad. Please, no. She continued. I listened. I was asleep on the sofa, right where you're sitting now. I was dreaming about you, and I dreamed... I dreamed you were at the bottom of the stairs. You were dead, and I had killed you. I heard then a loud crash, and it, it jolted me awake. I felt certain the grandfather clock had somehow tumbled from its place in the corner. The crash was that jarring, but it stood firm and sturdy as ever. I pinched myself to be certain, but I knew I was awake. I knew it. I sat there for several moments, and then heard quite distinctly the door to our upstairs bedroom open. You know how it sounds, the way it creaks, especially when you're trying to push it open slowly. And then a soft patter of footsteps, bare feet, running down the stairs. I reached over and snapped on the lamp, and as I sat there, looking at the closed door to the hallway and the stairs beyond, I knew that whatever had come down those stairs was now on the other side of that door. And then I heard movement against the door. Rubbing sounds, scratching sounds, as if whatever was on the other side needed to learn how to open the door. After a moment, it stopped, and there was only silence. I could hear the ticking of the grandfather clock and the loud thumping of my heart. Then the handle turned, and the door opened, and, and it was you, standing in the doorway. It was you. And you opened your mouth, and dirt and worms and old leaves fell out, and you began to chant, Feed it. Feed it. We have to feed it. Feed it. Feed it. Have to. I opened my eyes, and it was morning. Just like that. And I was alone. She paused in her story, and I remained seated, immobile. And dare I admit it? Frightened myself. Yet her story was simply unbelievable. I spoke to her then. My words, sensible. My voice, neutral. Well, there you see. It was just a nightmare after all. Indeed, a terrible one. The worst I've ever heard, but still... No! No, it wasn't! It... Whatever it is, it wants me to think it was a nightmare... Don't you see? It wants to hurt us. And it wants me to hurt you. Of course, it had to have been a nightmare. There was no other explanation. That night, I finally persuaded her to sleep in the bedroom with me. I assured her that now that I was home, she would be safe. And if there was something in the house, I indulged her only a little, well, I would be there to protect her. And whatever stress or worry that might be causing this, if she had the nightmare again, I would be there to wake her. 
We slept together in the bedroom. We left the light on, for Emma's sake more than my own, and I held her tightly to me. After a while, I dozed. Then, in the middle of the night, I was jolted awake. I think it was the lights, really. The bedroom lights. We had left them on, but I woke only to shadows. And... noises. As if a large dog had somehow gotten into the room. I turned towards the sound of that noise. I turned towards Emma and... Dear God, what I was seeing in the dimly lit room could not have been real. It was as if everything I'd ever known, everything I'd ever believed in, had been flipped upside down. Emma was lying flat on her back, eyes wide open and... terrible. Those beautiful brown eyes I'd always known and loved were now large, black, gaping things bulging as if they might burst from their sockets at any moment. And something was sitting on her chest. Something unimaginable. Whatever it was, it just wanted to... to eat. I don't know how I knew that, but I did. It wanted to eat. I reached out to grab the hideous thing. To, I don't know, punch it away, I guess. Something. But I could not move. I could only watch as the thing crouched on her chest, and I realized then that it was squeezing the breath out of her. It was trying to kill her, perhaps because she would not do what it wanted her to do, or, I considered, perhaps it was because we had not done what we should have done. There was no way to be sure. Is it possible to faint in the middle of a nightmare? I don't know. I only know that I woke some time later and felt relief pour over me. The lights were on as we had left them. It had only been a bad dream. Emma's story had affected me more than I thought it would. That was all. I turned to her, and she was on her side, her back to me. I gently touched her shoulder and rolled her over. My body went numb. So complete was my horror that for the second time that night, I was paralyzed. I could not move. I could only stare into the ghastly face of my dead wife. This morning, I made breakfast. Scrambled eggs, bacon, fatty the way I like it, and toast. But I couldn't eat it. Not any of it. And I thought of the thing that had been sitting on Emma's chest, like a crouching shadow. I thought about it as I walked out to the woods behind the field, the plate with the uneaten breakfast in one hand. Raw, fatty bacon, and I stood in front of the pile of rocks, and looking at it, I realized Emma had been right. It really was like a little stone house. I set the tin plate on the ground and began removing a few rocks that had fallen and covered the opening. Soon I found myself gazing into the tiny gap. I thought if I really let my imagination run loose for just a moment... I could visualize that the flat stone that lay in the center of that small enclosure really could be a miniature table, or an altar, a stone altar, in the March cold. I crouched down and slid the plate through the narrow opening. I'm not sure why I did it, but I think it was the sign, really, that old termite-infested sign, and some vague, indistinct hope for a happy home feed the troll. I recalled an old story my grandmother had once told me, something the old-timers used to say. Build a stone house for the troll. 
Feed it each winter, and it will protect you and your home. Don't feed it, and it will come into your house and take the thing that is most precious to you. Tonight I lay on the parlor sofa with the light on. I tried sleeping in our bedroom, but I woke up in the middle of the night from some horrible, half-remembered nightmare, sliding the plate of food through that slot in the pile of rocks, and a hand, small and dirty, but strong, reaches out and grabs me by the wrist, and I think, too late, I'm too late, a nightmare, only a nightmare. I try to shake the dream, but even now, with all the lights on, I can't sleep. I look down at my hands, the dirt still caked between my fingers and underneath my nails from that awful troll house, and something else. There's a dirty smudge around my wrist. The smudge is small, with distinct little streaks, as if made by tiny fingers, and I find that I've never been more terrified in my entire life. Upstairs, coming from our bedroom, I hear snuffling noises. With most of us currently in the midst of a cold winter, we can be grateful for a warm place to dwell. But what if there's someone else who is seeking warmth? Do you offer to share the comfort of your home? As we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Marissa Snyder, a lone woman endures a cruel winter on her farm until she finds herself having to deal with an unexpected visitor. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, and Aaron Lillis. So bundle up warm and keep your wits about you. It's going to be a cold and unsettling seven weeks. The first time I saw it, it was perched on the water trough in front of the barn running long fingers down the back of one of the milking goats. The bucket of feed slipped from my fingers. A shard of icy shock burrowed deep in my stomach. It's not real, I told myself. It can't be real. But then it began to speak. Aren't you afraid, living out here all on your own? The voice was sticky. Repulsive, like walking through a cobweb. I hurtled back to the cab and locked the door and watched it from one of the windows. It was like nothing I had ever seen before. Words crowded into my mind. Monster, demon, specter. But they were a horde of buzzing flies, and I wanted desperately to swat them away. Inexplicably, the animals were unfazed by its presence. The chickens pecked at the spilled grain around its taloned feet. The goats nosed into the palms of its wrinkled hands. How? My brain stuttered. What? 
All day I watched it, and all day it sat there, drumming its heels against the trough, dipping its fingers into the water. Once it beckoned to me, and that simple movement sent a shiver of chills whispering down my spine. What do you want? I demanded through the glass. I drew the drapes tightly closed, checked the lock once, twice, three times, then sat by the door with the shotgun on my lap. Dusk fell, the cabin darkened, and when I finally worked up the courage to draw aside the drapes with a trembling hand, it was gone. A week later, it was back. He was sitting on the trough again, splashing murky water at the goats. It paused when it saw me standing on the porch and grinned, showing me a mouthful of jagged teeth. Are you sure you don't want to let me in? It casually picked a tan-speckled feather out from between its incisors and flicked it in my direction. Anger surged, outweighing my fear. But screaming at it, I discovered, had no effect. Nor shooting, though the rounds were nearly gone and I couldn't bring myself to use very many. The thought of approaching it sent my heart crashing against my ribs. But I had chickens to feed, goats to milk. So I gathered myself and stepped off the porch. Don't touch any more of my hens, I told it. I held my voice steady, kept my tone firm. I could feel its pale eyes roving over me as I did my chores. It tracked my movements like a cat watching a limping rabbit. I hesitated when it was time to fill the trough, but it sat up and shifted its knobby legs out of my way. What will you do if he doesn't come back? What do you mean? I think you know what I mean. I kept my gaze fixed on the water flowing into the trough to avoid having to look at it. He will come back. He promised he would. But if he doesn't... Then I'll leave. Go get help. I turned away quickly, the empty pail slapping against my thighs. It's over 20 miles to town, and he took your only horse. The third week it appeared, it was straddling the fence around the chicken run. It was a few yards closer to the cabin, I noticed, and it seemed thinner than last time. The face was slightly pinched, the cheeks hollow. I ventured through the gate. He should have returned by now. People get delayed. He'll be back soon. You should probably let me inside. I flung the grain far, trying to lure the hens away from its dangling claws. Feed is getting low. It crooned to the chickens as I made my way to the garden to harvest the last of the withering pumpkins. The song was strange. The words unfamiliar. 
It rattled in my mind as I worked, like marbles clacking. (sighs) I blew out a sigh of relief when I could finally retreat to the safety of the cabin. But the singing carried through the walls, the refrain repeating incessantly as I nodded my apron, sliced up all the pumpkins, and kneaded dough. It was still swinging from the gate of the chicken run when I set the pie on the windowsill to cool. The fourth week, it was laying on top of a hay bale near the depleted garden, gazing up at the clouds. It was definitely thinner now. The skin was sagging, ribs jutting from its flanks. My breath frosted the air as I went about completing my chores. I broke crusts of stale bread for the chickens and let the goats into the yard to graze on what little grass was left. How much longer do you think you can last? It really would be easier if you'd let me inside. I clutched my shawl tighter around my shoulders. I already told you. He's going to come back. I wouldn't be too sure about that. It stretched out a spindly arm and scratched one of the does between her stubby horns. Hadn't you hear? They're calling for snow. The fifth week, it appeared, the blizzard still hadn't abated. I pulled aside the drapes to find that it had carved out a little cave in the snow, just a few feet away from my front porch. Fat, white flurries swirled through the air, blotting out the sun. I lugged my layers on, wedged my feet into heavy boots. The yard was a blanket of powder, and I had to wade through the drifts to reach the barn. Crouching in the snow cave, it hugged its gaunt arms tight around its body and leered as I struggled along with my milking pail. Are you just going to sit there? I'm going to let me inside. On the way back to the cabin, I slipped on a slick of ice. My arms churned. Milk splashed from the pail. And when I fell, my ankle twisted viciously underneath me. The wind swallowed my scream. Pain was an arrow pinning me to the ground. When I finally caught my breath and worked my boot off, the skin around the bone was already bruised and swelling. It sat up straighter, a grin splitting its face apart. Oh, dear. You really are in trouble now, aren't you? The sixth week it appeared, it was sitting on my front steps. The flesh was rotting off its skeletal limbs, and a sweet, thick stench emanated from it, like carrion roasting in the sun. It's time to let me inside, don't you think? My ankle was a purple plum, bloated and mottled and hot to the touch. But I hobbled outside anyway, pushing past its wasted form with barely a glance. Ignoring me won't help. The goat herd had winnowed, 
the chickens had flown away. My stomach was a howling cavern, aching and insistent. I slid a sharpened knife into the throat of the last doe and sighed as the blood warmed my frozen fingers. I carried the carcass back to the cabin. What a shame. She was my favorite. The seventh week it appeared. It was pacing just outside my door. The planks of the porch creaked under its feet as it walked back and forth, calling my name. The voice was softer now. Sweeter. Almost a lullaby. I hadn't left the cabin in days. The pantry was picked clean. The hearth a pile of ashes. My bed was as cold as a grave. But I curled up under the quilt anyway and stared at the door, shivering. The empty space beside me was a stark reminder of what I knew by then to be true. He wasn't coming back. A shadow shifted through a crack in the drapes. Then the knocking followed, soft at first, then harder, louder, rattling the door frame. The blows echoed through the cabin, steady and ceaseless as my own heartbeat. The seventh week, I unlatched the lock, opened the door, and beckoned it inside. In our final tale, we meet a doctor paying his respects in the town cemetery. Certainly not the most cheery of places to be. And in this tale, shared with us by author Blake Chastain, the good doctor is perplexed to see a newly dug grave. Even more perplexing, the gravestone bears the name of the doctor himself. I join Mike Delgadio, Dan Zapula, Kristen DiMercurio, and Jesse Cornett in performing this tale. And so, if you find yourself walking among the dead, try to limit the time you spend with them. Very little good can come from being in the graveyard. The thick black letters spelled out Jake Williams on the granite tombstone, and the man stood over the gravesite, perplexed to see his own name residing in the local cemetery among the deceased. Jake Williams had been staring at his name for some time, as if doing so would erase the letters, or, at the very least, give him a rational explanation as to how his name wound up on a tombstone overlooking a freshly dug grave. Jake Williams had been on his way out of the cemetery 
after visiting his parents' graves when he saw the tombstone all by itself in an empty field. He would have kept riding along on his horse, but the slab of stone seemed to call his name from afar, whispering into his ear, into his mind, and reeling him in with morbid curiosity. As if under a hypnotic spell, Jake steered his horse in its direction. The grave was located on a patch of brown grass underneath a crumbling, crooked tree where he hitched his horse onto. Half of its bark was chipped away, revealing deep cuts along its bent trunk, and it sagged to the point that a strong gust of wind might blow it down any second. The gravesite was unlike the others, which were all well tended to with lush green grass, fresh flowers, and personal gifts to remember the dead. However, this grave was desolate, isolated in the open field, and looked to be dying. It was as if death was spreading out from the grave, an open wound in the ground that was corrupting what little life surrounded it. A cluster of foreboding clouds circled overhead like a murder of crows. Thunder boomed in the distance. Jake shuddered. There was no shelter nearby, and his mother's incessant warnings of safety came rushing back to him her voice ringing in his ear, louder than a morning alarm clock, shouting something about not standing under trees during thunderstorms, especially ones that looked like they were going to collapse on their own accord. A hoarse voice called out from behind him. Dr. Williams? He recognized the man before he turned around. It was old George, the gravekeeper. He would supply the hospital with dead bodies from time to time for use of experimentation. Bodies without names that wound up dead on the streets. Ah, George, I'm glad you're here. Mind explaining all this to me? Well, I was hoping you would be the one doing all the explaining. George had a ghost-like appearance, as if working with corpses through the years had drained him of his life. His weathered skin looked paler than usual as he stepped closer to the mysterious gravesite, looking down at it with his pale blue eyes. Pardon? Well, I sure don't know how this got here. George, this is your graveyard. You must know. Old George shook his head. Do tombstones simply pop out of the ground overnight, right over open gravesites? No. How does something like this happen, then? One of my boys on guard duty last night spotted a guy out here. And? Said one of them looked just like you. Like me? <laughs> Jake laughed in the cold air. Another clap of thunder boomed in response. Ah, look, I don't care how or why you did this, but could you at least put the dirt back into the grave for me? The storm's moving in. You think I did this? Where'd you put the dirt? In all my years, I've never seen a grave like this one. Jake looked at his gravesite and saw what old George had pointed out, that there was no dirt around, only dead grass. He peered into the grave for the first time, and there looked to be no bottom, only an endless darkness. 
An icy gust of wind blew up from below, sending a chill up Jake's spine, as if a ghost had passed right through him. That's not normal, right? Of course it's not. How are we going to fill this thing up? We? Beads of rain began dropping down. Jake was dizzy and nauseous. After peering into the endless, dark void and staring at his name all morning, he wanted to lie down and go into a deep, dreamless sleep. He needed to wake himself up from the beginning of this existential nightmare before it got worse by going back to bed. Old George was yelling something to him as he untied his horse and rode away from the grave, though his voice was drowned out entirely by the storm. Jake rode through the pouring rain, the horse's hooves clattered against the stone, tiled roads and splashed through deep puddles. By the time he reached his home, he was drenched. He peeled off his wet layers after stepping inside, which was when he noticed the back of his right hand. It was trembling. It was also missing a large portion of skin. There was no flesh or blood, no sign of injury, just a hole that went straight to his bones as if his skin had been torn clean off. He discovered the wound extended to his palm as well when he flipped his hand over. He wiggled his fingers and watched the bones move accordingly, though they didn't feel like they belonged to him since they were supposed to be tucked away under his skin. Having them exposed was an unnatural and deathly sight that not even his title of Dr. Williams could reasonably explain. The open wound didn't cause him any pain, but an emotional distress was rushing through his body in the form of a pulsing anxiety from his pounding chest up into his temples and down his quivering legs. So far, his entire morning had been marked by death. He took some deep breaths. He did his best to remove his emotion from the scenario by thinking of his hand as a patient's hand. It was just another day at work and he needed some type of answers to the questions swirling around in his head. The rain had already died down to a drizzle, so he decided it was best to start his investigation back at the gravesite, where this had all begun. He remembered that he'd touched the odd tombstone with his bare hand, where the skin was now missing. So he put on the thickest pair of gloves he owned and took his horse and carriage back to the cemetery. He wanted to remove the tombstone from its location and examine it carefully, though it was also a means to ease his anxieties over death since he felt it was a bad omen to leave the tombstone out in the open field. When he arrived back at the graveyard, a shadowy figure was at the gravesite. Jake called out to old George, but he didn't respond. He was bent down, running his finger along the tombstone. The man ignored Jake's warnings not to touch the stone tablet. As his horse trotted over, the sounds of metal scraping against granite pierced Jake's ears. To his surprise, the noise was emanating from the crouching man. What are you doing? Silence. What are you doing to that tombstone? Jake carefully omitted the word my so as not to claim ownership over the tombstone, despite knowing his name was etched across it. The crouching man stopped his work and turned around to face Jake 
who nearly fell off his horse in shock. The face possessed no skin, only skeletal bone. Three empty holes were etched onto its face, two empty eye socks, and an empty space where its nose had been. All of its teeth were on display, forever locked in an eerie smile stretching into its cheekbones. It was wearing a black suit and top hat with a white shirt, similar to every respectable man in town. Although the clothes hung loose off its thin frame, drooping so severely at the sides, it looked as though the material was falling off. Who are you? What do you want? While still brandishing a wide smile, the skeleton fell backwards into the grave, unafraid of the darkness lurking below. Jake rushed to the hole, but the body had already disappeared. When he looked upon the tombstone, he started trembling again. A new detail had emerged. His birth date was etched into the stone as well as the beginning of what looked to be his death date. It read as, Dr. Jake Williams, April 3rd, 1875-May. The death date was incomplete. The skeleton had stopped the inscription process when Jake had interrupted, which he now regretted, as the ambiguity of the month filled his head with anxiety. The current date was May 19th, 1910. He already wondered if he was 19 days into the month he was supposed to die, or if it was a different May waiting in the future. Nevertheless, Jake was terrified to die. While on his knees and holding onto the tombstone for extra support, Jake peered into the dark void. It echoed his name. It was a low murmur. The voice whispered into his ear, tempting him to jump in as well. Jake's skin crawled with goosebumps. He had had enough. He took the tombstone with him, and in his panicked mind reasoned that removing it from its spot would put an end to the strange nightmare. So he dug it up from the ground with the shovel he brought from home, then placed it on the floor of the horse carriage. When he was finished, he took off both gloves to inspect his hands. His left hand was still fine, but the hole in his right hand was similar to the open wound of the gravesite, spreading with decay, and he would have to carry this miniature grave with him wherever he went. Therefore, he put the gloves back on to conceal it, to deny his fading existence. No one else could know about his hand until he inspected it further at the hospital. He knew all too well about what happened to patients with unexplainable conditions that were sent to the surgical room to be experimented on, and how they never left that death chamber alive. He headed straight for the hospital. The rain was falling once more, and a thick fog shrouded the hospital building in a gloomy blur, which Jake considered beneficial, since he could use the gray cloudiness as a cover to slip in and out undetected. It was supposed to be his day off from work, and since he'd never been good at keeping secrets or dealing with his anxieties, he assumed everyone else could see his malformed hand through the black glove, like blood seeping into a cast covering a gruesome injury, and all his colleagues would question and inspect him, and he would spread his decay onto them. 
Jake took a deep breath, went over the successful version of his plan in his mind to distract him from the worst-case scenario. He was going to grab as many books on infectious skin diseases as he could carry, grab his microscope, not make eye contact with anyone, and head back home. He grabbed the handle of his empty briefcase with his right gloved hand and immediately checked to see if he dropped it since he couldn't feel the handle at all. Yet it was still in his grasp despite there being no feeling as if holding on to thin air, as if his right hand had evaporated into the mist surrounding him and there was nothing more than a cloud. He rubbed both hands together, but only his left hand possessed the sensation of touch. Jake entered the hospital to gather his belongings, looking like a water-damaged ceiling. Drops of rain leaked off his suit, which was painted with patches of mud. He recognized his horrid appearance when a nurse stared at him without saying hello, her eyes fixated on his muddy knees where he knelt down at the gravesite. His goal had been to sneak in and out of the hospital undetected, yet so far he was attracting unwanted attention making him all the more paranoid. He successfully filled his briefcase with books from the hospital's library and retreated back into his office to grab his microscope without anyone engaging him. However, someone knocked on his office door. His heart sank. The knocks echoed inside his body. He hesitated near the glass door, not wanting to open up unsure of the blurred image on the other side. Jake, open up. I can see you. His wife, Catherine. He opened the door. Sorry, I I didn't know it was you. Catherine looked him up and down without saying a word, as if inspecting a sick patient. She was wearing her nurse's uniform, as well as a serious look across her face. What happened to you? I I, I fell. Catherine arched her eyebrow, expecting more of an explanation from Jake. I fell at the graveyard after visiting my parents, and unfortunately got caught in the downpour. Jake gave a weak smile, pretending everything was fine when it clearly wasn't. Are you all right? Of course I'm all right. It's only some water. It'll dry, you know. I meant the mud all over your suit. Catherine circled around Jake's desk, trying to peek into his briefcase. Have you seen yourself in the mirror lately? Yes, which is why I'm heading home. And today is already your day off? I'm aware of that now, which is why I'm heading home. What aren't you telling me? What's wrong? Nothing hurts. Just please stop asking me all of these questions. Jake was twitching with anxiety. He was sweating. He wanted to tell Catherine everything, but he didn't understand what was happening to him. He did think about showing Catherine his right hand, since it was tangible, though he feared the deathly sight would send her into shock. He didn't want to lie to his wife, but he also didn't know where to begin with the truth. It was easier to lie, safer that way. After inspecting his hand at home later that night, he reasoned, 
he would tell her more details. Please, just trust me right now. Fine, but could you at least explain the gloves? Oh, these? Jake asked as if they were a pair of glasses he'd worn every day, which shouldn't have warranted a question. Yes, those. Well, my hands are cold. You know that they're always cold. This was partially true. Jake possessed the blood circulation of a man forever trapped in a snowstorm, thus making his hands and feet almost always cold. However, in the present moment, while Jake's left hand was freezing, his right hand still had no feeling in it at all. It was still absent, asleep, and likely never waking up. I could warm them up for you. Catherine gave a coy smile. She was now standing in front of Jake with her hands reaching for his gloves. Catherine's hands were also stuck within an eternal winter. But when the two held each other's hands, a warm affection would melt away whatever coldness either were experiencing. It was a promise they had made to each other, to keep each other warm when needed. Therefore, it wasn't really a question when Catherine made the suggestion. Yet Jake, fearful of what was dwelling in his right glove withdrew his hands and buried them within his coat pockets. How can you be so cold? Her smile had faded to an angry frown. Please don't be upset. Well, I'm fairly upset right now, and unless you explain yourself, then I'm going to continue being upset. I don't even know how to explain. That's a terrible excuse. It's not an excuse. Listen, Catherine, I'm sick right now. I'm not well, and I don't want to pass whatever this is on to you. What do you mean? What sickness? It's my right hand. Let me see. Jake pulled his hands out of his coat pockets, but couldn't bring himself to remove the gloves. He closed his eyes. Catherine grabbed his right hand, but Jake didn't even notice. When she pulled the glove off, she shrieked, forcing Jake's eyes back open. (gasps) For a while, they both stared at the ghastly sight of his hand, which had changed drastically since Jake's visit to the graveyard. They stood in dead silence. The only sound in the room he could hear was his own thumping heartbeat. His entire hand was skeletal. All of his skin had vanished without a trace. Why wouldn't you tell me about this? It didn't look like this earlier. It was just a wound, but now... We need to go get help. No, wait. That's exactly what I don't want. We can't let anyone else know about this right now. How come? I'm not going to be some test subject. But if you don't get any help at all, then... Catherine started to cry. Jake held her in his arms. We'll figure this out together. Tonight, in fact. And I'll need your help. We'll figure this sickness out without anyone else knowing. Catherine held on to Jake a little tighter, as if she'd never let him go. All right. Someone else knocked on the office door. 
The blurred silhouette stood on the other end. Catherine waited for Jake to put on his gloves before opening the door and greeting the newly promoted head surgeon, Dr. Roberts. Ah, Catherine. What a pleasant surprise. Catherine beamed a warm smile. Likewise, and congratulations on your promotion, Dr. Roberts. Why, thank you. Catherine stood in the cracked doorway, trying to shield Jake from his view. Uh, might your husband be in at the moment? Dr. Roberts stood on his toes, his eyes setting over the horizon of Catherine's nursing hat in an attempt to see into the office. He is present. Catherine swung the door open, and they both entered the tight quarters. Ah, perfect. Uh, are you on the clock right now? Not exactly, but Catherine and I were just moving some stuff around my office. Can I help you with anything? Always straight to business, and always working on something. <laughs> I like that about you. I could actually use your assistance if you have an hour to spare. Jake agreed to help before even asking about his role. Dr. Roberts told him to head over to the surgical room in around five or so minutes, boasting about a potential surgical operation for the ages, as he always did, grabbing as many doctors for an audience to witness his achievements. When he eventually left, Catherine dropped her warm smile and whipped around to face her husband. Have you lost your mind as well? No. It's very much intact. Jake touched his forehead to make sure the skin was still intact. You could have said no. Not exactly. When the chief of surgery asks for a favor, he's not really asking. He's giving you an order. Tell him you're sick then. Catherine, it's only an hour, then I'll be done. I promise. Catherine grabbed Jake's suitcase and microscope. Where should I take these? I'll take them. I want to help. Fine. The horse and carriage are right outside on the east exit. They kissed each other goodbye, exchanged statements of love for the other, and went on their respective paths. Jake strolled into the surgery room, which was surprisingly empty. Usually when a surgery was taking place, the small room was bustling with activity, though given the late hour, there were plenty of open seats. The room itself resembled a small theater, more so than a space for surgical procedures, and on center stage was the operating table. The main spectacle, a sedated patient, whose body was covered by a white garment, was lying flat across the table, with a team of gloved surgeons in white masks standing over top of him. Over top of them were six rows of seats that encircled the small room. The men sitting above were perched over the edge of their chairs, peering down upon the procedure like birds on telephone wires. Jake was greeted by Dr. Roberts on his way in. Even with the concealed mask over his face, he was wearing an excited expression, as was each member of his team. 
They were all eager to begin. Everyone besides Jake. Uh, we were a little short on the numbers tonight, so I thought you might like to sit in on this one. And when I saw you in the library and saw the books on infectious diseases of the skin bundled in your arms, I knew you'd take a fancy to this one in particular. Jake shuddered, but maintained his composure. Yes, it's a topic that's piqued my interest, but what disease does this patient have that would require surgery? I've never seen surgery done for a skin problem. Well, that's been the question on all of our minds as of late. I don't think I understand. We actually don't have a name for the disease yet. That's unfortunate. Oh, no, no. It's uh, hardly a misfortune. In fact, we're delighted to treat this disease since we'll be the first to cure it. If we're so lucky, we'll even be able to name it ourselves. It's a great opportunity for us all. Jake was troubled by the cheery demeanor of Dr. Roberts. The surgeon was overly excited by the unknown mystery beneath the patient's white cloth, as if he were stepping foot upon an uncharted land for the first time and claiming the discovery in his own name. I can hardly wait. Jake wanted their brief encounter to end. He wanted to get as far away from Dr. Roberts as possible. However, the surgeon was extending his gloved hand for a handshake before Jake could be on his way. I can see that. Uh, you even brought your own gloves. <laughs> Jake's heart was racing. He could feel sweat forming around the back of his neck. His left hand was shaky and sweating while his right hand was empty. He'd never felt so anxious about shaking hands with someone in his entire life. Surely Dr. Roberts would notice the strange shape of his hand. There was no way to avoid the handshake without raising even more suspicion, and the same went for the possibility of using his left hand. And so, he shook the surgeon's hand with his gloved skeletal hand and wished him the best of luck. Jake's stomach started to twist itself into knots. He was already nauseous. The memories of the first surgical procedure he witnessed flashed in his mind, producing gory images that had prevented him from sleeping later that same night. After he sat down, the white cover was pulled off the patient, like curtains being drawn at the start of a play, and he nearly fell out of his seat and onto the operating table when it began. Everyone else seemed equally shocked by the horrifying display. They all gasped together in one long breath. The patient's head and face looked normal, but the rest of his body, from his neck down to his toes, was a horrific sight. The man was a corpse in the process of rotting. Large portions of his skin were missing, exposing white bones and organs underneath, similar to Jake's initial wound that morning. The skin that remained was stretched and mangled at the ends, like torn clothing with irreparable holes throughout. However, perhaps the strangest aspect of all was that upon further inspection, the patient was still alive. His bloodied heart was still beating through his skeletal ribcage. A few strands of veins, like vines with red foliage, ran along his arms, which no longer possessed any pink flesh. His two exposed lungs expanded and contracted 
with his slow, heavy breathing. This patient didn't look human, but rather was more akin to a rusted machine on the verge of falling apart, with mechanical parts pumping life into him. Jake gripped his right hand, as if doing so could contain the unknown, nameless infection from spreading to the rest of his body as it had for the patient below him. The two shared the disease, and Jake looked upon the final result of what it could look like for him. At any moment, a day or two, maybe even by the end of the night, the small hole that originated on his hand would spread to the rest of his body, eating away his skin, turning him into a rotting corpse, and then into a skeleton. Jake wondered how many others were afflicted, and if anyone else had come across a tombstone with their own name etched across it, like foreboding letters addressing their imminent death. The patient's eyes opened. To everyone's horror, aside from the surgical team and the patient himself, he was fully conscious. He was a living, breathing corpse. Dr. Roberts assured his small audience that they had tried to sedate the patient numerous times, but no amount of drugs could put him asleep. During the first surgery, he'd woken up, yet felt no semblance of pain. In fact, the man stated he felt nothing at all, including fear, which enabled him to witness the surgical operation on himself. His voice reflected his lack of fear. He spoke of his approaching death as if it were an ordinary, gentle event he could see coming, like the sun setting over the horizon. Jake was the exact opposite of the man's stoic composure. His thunderous heartbeat made him squirm in his uncomfortable seat. The nausea from earlier was sliding up his throat. A sharp pain was stabbing his stomach. Though Jake knew that exiting the small room would draw unwanted attention his way, he could no longer remain seated. It was pure torture. If anyone questioned him, he would use his nausea as an excuse. He made his way back to ground level and was about to dash through the small entrance to make his escape. Something held him back. He came to an abrupt halt. His right arm was lagging behind himself. And when he turned around, he realized someone was holding on to his numbed right hand, preventing him from leaving. Dr. Williams, please don't leave just yet. Let go of my hand! It was too late. The glove slipped off his right hand without any effort since there was no skin there. His skeletal hand was on full display for the entire room. The rest of the surgical team stalked forward. Their expressions were concealed underneath their white masks, which Jake deemed as threatening since they were each holding on to surgical instruments. Through his paranoid lenses, the unknown equipment was a set of sharp objects in the gloved hands of the surgical team, which he feared they would use against him if he stayed. The already tight confines of the circular room constricted around Jake even further, as did Dr. Robert's grip on his arm and wrist the more he struggled to free himself. It was as claustrophobic as a grave, to the point he could hardly breathe, and if he didn't free himself soon, he feared the surgical room would be his final resting place. Jake tried to hit Dr. Roberts with his left hand, but the punch didn't feel as though it landed. His left hand was also numb. Since his right hand was still handcuffed by Dr. Roberts' clasp, he put his left glove to his mouth and used his teeth to remove it. It slid off just as easily as the right, since his left hand was smaller than when he entered the surgical room. 
it too had lost its original form. Only skeletal bones were left behind. Jake extended his new hand towards the surgeon's face, and his eyes grew twice in size. He released his grip over Jake's wrist and stumbled away to safety. Jake had no idea if his mysterious disease was contagious, but based on everyone's fearful reactions, it seemed likely. It was also possible that the surgical team had no idea either, which was why they maintained a safe distance from Jake. He held up both skeletal hands like bony weapons as he backed out of the room. After successfully holding everyone at bay, he sprinted back to his office, but Catherine was not present. She'd already packed his belongings, so Jake left the office, climbed onto his horse and carriage once more, and headed back home. Jake's plan changed entirely when he arrived back home and found the peculiar object resting in his backyard. The object caught his eye as he tied his horse to the hitching post. Gray granite, illuminated by the moon, like a spotlight shining down to guide his attention. At first, he thought his eyes weren't functioning properly. He was sure that he'd tucked the gravestone inside the carriage behind him, yet it was standing upright in his small backyard. It called to him once more, a low murmur, a strange yet familiar sound. As it increased in volume, he recognized the owner. It was his voice. It pulled him in like the first time he'd seen it out in the open field of the cemetery, the moon displaying new details on stone. The date of his death was complete. May 20th, 1910. Jake nearly fainted, though doing so would have sent him spiraling down into the earth since a freshly dug grave was wide open below his feet. And just like at the local graveyard, there was no dirt lying around, and the grave's hole was a dark, bottomless pit. Jake retreated into his home, into his office where he locked the door and shut himself off from the outside world. Less than one day remained in his life. Less than one day to develop a cure for the sickness eating away at his body. His mind became a victim of obsession. The sickness and cure were all thought about on a constant loop. A concert of unwanted thoughts blared into his skull. The only method of turning down its volume was to keep working and let the research absorb him. And so, he buried himself in his office, digging himself deeper and deeper with each textbook he poured over, digging through each textbook for an answer he knew didn't even exist yet. He wasn't sure how much time passed. After reigniting the candles around his office for better lighting, he rolled up his shirt sleeves, still shocked by his inability to experience touch, and found that more skin was missing on his arms. Veins dangled off bones like vines wrapped around branches. His bony hands hesitated around his shirt buttons, afraid to unveil an even more horrifying appearance underneath. Yet, his initial fear was fading away. The same numbness in his arms and hands was filling his torso like an anesthetic. No longer was his chest suffocated with tightness, and the knots in his stomach untied themselves. He felt far removed from his own body, as if floating along a cloud away from physical pain. To Jake, it felt as if his shirt unbuttoned itself. He drifted into the bathroom and was looking at the reflection before him with the far-removed perspective 
like peering through the opposite end of a telescope. When his vision finally adjusted, he saw the horrific upper half of the deformed body. It looked worse than the patient he'd seen a few hours ago. This was because the body was still in the process of decaying. He witnessed the skin slowly vanishing out of sight. The erasure left behind only the organs and the alien mechanical parts that were keeping the body functional. The top half went first, the sickness gradually making its way down to the stomach, an exposed throat with horizontal bony lines and a chest with parts of the ribcage poking out through melting flesh were also on full display. The numbness wasn't strong enough to ease Jake's nausea. He did everything he could to suppress the rising queasiness, but it rushed up towards his skeletal throat and spilled out from there. Vomit dripped down the decaying body. The rancid smell filled the air, and chunks of vomit were already sticking to bone. Jake was now covered in death, decaying, and his own vomit. In defeat, he plopped down into a tub and turned the hot water on to wash away the sickness, throwing his stained clothes in as well. He plunged under the warm surface, though only certain sections of his body felt the soothing water. Jake used the right skeleton arm as if controlling machinery to grab a nearby sponge and scrub the puke-stained bones. He soaked in the murky water for a few more minutes, unsure of how to proceed. For a brief moment, he felt as if tears would roll down his cheeks, but they hung on to the edge of his eyelids and refused to fall. They retreated as the numbness returned. He noted the lack of his pulsing heartbeat, though the organ trapped inside the ribcage still thumped below him. His legs were submerged under the cloudy bathwater, and though he rubbed them together and wriggled his toes, they could not be felt. Jake doubted their existence. He knew they would be skeletal when lifted out of the water. It was strange to climb out of the tub without any basis of feeling to ground himself with, and he nearly fell over. Jake regretted taking one more glance into the mirror. The reflection displayed an inhuman image. The face was cracked and eroded like cement. Multiple lines of cuts surfaced on the skin without any blood oozing out. In under a minute, the skin scrunched up and then rotted away like a crumbling leaf during winter. Flaps of skin hung off the face and exposed the white bone underneath. One patch around the left eye had completely fallen away, making the entire eyeball visible, which looked to be bulging out of its socket. The worst part of the experience was the emptiness that consumed Jake, the absence of any emotion. His body, his emotions, and his entire sense of self had been erased before his own eyes. He contemplated drowning himself in the bathtub. After all, his death was already etched in stone, and he needed to feel something. But before he could re-enter the tub, there was a knock on the office door. He'd locked it as a precaution. Jake? Jake, is that you? Jake was catatonic. Jake, please open up. I need to know that you're okay. Go away, Catherine. Jake's voice sounded altered, hollow. The tone was cold and detached, as if someone else was speaking for him and pushing Catherine away in the process. Not until you open up. The door remained shut. 
It's for your own good if you just leave right now. If you're worried about hurting me, just know that my hand will be fine. They said it will heal. They said... What? A small wave of concern had returned to Jake, a semblance of his humanity, enough to get him to rise out of the tub and stand behind the door. When I held your hand, I lost some of my skin. Show me. He unlocked the door, cracking it just enough to peek an eye out into the hallway. He used the side of his face in the doorway, the one without his entire eyeball visible. Catherine held her injured hand in the doorway. Her skin was charred, as if she'd experienced third-degree burns. It was also wrinkled and withered, appearing as though it had aged a hundred years in a day. I'm so sorry, Catherine. Jake knew that the feeling of remorse was subdued significantly. His stomach was no longer turned with nausea. The coldness in his voice was an icy wind, like the gusts of wind that were exhaled from the gravesite. It's nobody's fault, Jake. She withdrew her hand from the doorway. Jake was disappointed that she didn't even try to force her way into the office. It wasn't like Catherine to give up that easily. Maybe she'd witnessed some of his hideousness. Maybe the smell of the vomit reeked its way into the hallway. At least now one of my hands isn't cold, right? Jake didn't laugh. He couldn't. I can't feel either of my hands. Show me. Jake closed the door instead of sticking his skeletal hands into the doorway. That would only make you feel worse. You don't want to see them or me right now. Jake, please open back up. No, I've already done enough damage to you. The doctors can fix you. They cannot. The damage is already done. The police are here, Jake. What? Catherine took a deep breath. They want to question you about the local gravekeeper and his staff. He's missing. I told them you had nothing to do with that, that you were just visiting your parents' gravesite, but they have an eyewitness and... And? And whatever that tombstone is outside, it's a connection. Jake worked his way over to the office window and pulled back the dark curtains. Sunlight beamed into the office. He was initially blinded by the surprising light, but when his eyes adjusted, he saw that a small crowd was standing over the open gravesite, all of them dressed in white, all of them ghost-like. White gowns, masks, and gloves concealed their skin, all of them standing over his grave like ghosts waiting for him to step outside the shelter of his office. Catherine, what day is it today? The 20th of May. He already knew the date, but he needed Catherine to tell him to make it real. Will you please come outside? I told them all that you would come peacefully, 
They're worried that the tombstone is a suicide note of sorts, but I told them that wasn't true, right? Tell me it's not true, Jake. Catherine, you need to get as far away from here as possible. They'll turn to you next after they're done with me. I can sleep you, Jake. Jake opened the office door and presented the decayed skeletal body to his wife. There's nothing left to save. He witnessed the shock of horror spread across his wife's face, the widening of her eyes, the dark pupils expanding and expelling the color green in the process. Her mouth opened, though no scream came roaring out. She then placed her hands over her face to hide from the frightful sight. I'm sorry, Jake. I'm so sorry. It's all right, but I have to go now. Thunderous footsteps were rushing to their location. Excited voices echoed off the walls. What? Where are you going? I love you, Catherine. Please be safe. He opened the office window to the outside world, and now only a man in a black suit was standing over his gravesite. His back turned to Jake, though the white backside of his skull, a full moon, told him who he was. The skeleton pointed to the grave with a bony finger, and before Jake could even jump down to his demise, a floating bone drifted down and dropped into the open grave. When Jake looked down at his skeletal figure, a few more bones were drifting away from the ribcage, as if gently sailing down a river. The bones from his fingers went next. They were individually plucked from their place before each fingerless palm followed closely behind. The toes and feet followed in the same manner, yet Jake remained suspended in the air by some strange force. The arms were detached from the shoulders and the legs from the pelvis. Shouting erupted from the doorway. Jake turned his neck to see that Catherine had barricaded herself in the office, locking the door behind her to prevent the doctors and police officers from reaching Jake. Before he had time to thank her, the organs were drifting along the invisible river and down into the mouth of the open grave, swallowing every piece whole. When he spoke, no words exited. Instead, the vocal cords drifted out of the mouth and the tongue, its full length a purple slug slithering out of the window. When he looked down, the heart was ripped from its place, still pulsing all the way down to its demise. The lungs followed behind like two floating balloons, still inhaling and exhaling. All the organs were still alive and functioning despite being separated. Jake wondered if and when his consciousness would fade out if it would continue to exist even after plunging into the dark void. The eyes were next. They were removed from the skull at different times. The first one swam down to the grave like a tadpole with its optic nerves serving as a thin tail. The second trailed behind, though its vision was directed back at the office. Jake was seeing both ahead and backwards at the same time, deep into the grave and back into the office where Catherine waved goodbye one last time, into the future and back into the past, where his old skull was slowly sliding down to meet its end, 
his brain following behind it. Jake's being was now fully disconnected. Though he'd escaped falling into the hands of the surgical team, all of his physical pieces were surgically dissected and separated from the whole. First, his skin had been cut, and now he was floating in individual pieces, organs and bones, into the bottomless pit. Both eyes fell into the grave. For a moment, there was nothing more than a flurry of racing thoughts. He worried about his wife and what would become of her in her injured hand. Would the sickness spread to her? Would the sickness spread to others? Would anyone find a cure for this disease? However, these thoughts slowed down. They decayed alongside the brain and skull. He lost all sense of being, his name, where he was, who he'd been in his former life. The mind without a self fell deeper and deeper into the blackness, like falling into a deep sleep, until it reached nothingness, complete emptiness. this night poetic works from darkness alight we leave you with this a question on a theme is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream the no sleep podcast is presented by creative reason media the musical score was composed by brandon boone our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Ollie White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for joining us within the exquisite horror of our reality. This audio program is copyright 2023 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.